Welcome back to the What's Your One More podcast. We are here for our final wrap-up on the year for the lending update that we do once a month. And uh, I have my continued co-host with me here today, Daniel Halverson, Area Manager with Bank of England. Thanks for joining me today. That's yeah, good to be back. Yeah, man. So we've got, uh, you know, it's I think we've done like six of these already this year. And it is interesting how um, some of the notions that we've said from the month of August even till now are, are starting to show up a little bit. And we're going to talk a little bit about that as we get in here. But, you know, for our audience, you know, one of the things that I continue to see on the feedback side of stuff that we're getting, especially from our social media and uh, also some of the comments that we're getting on YouTube from this, is that people really are appreciating the take on why now to buy versus some of the things they're hearing in the news. And, you know, I'm definitely glad that we're talking about that. But someone had asked some questions about, you know, well, well what if I want to rate and see if rates go down? Because you guys keep talking about rates go down, and we're going to talk about that as well. But we kind of have some options for people. If, if you're ready to buy now, if you're ready to take a look at something now, we've got some great options in this lending industry right now. And I'm just going to kick right off with that. So, you know, I kind of like what you wrote in here. It's like, how low can you go? And so I'm just going to really just give it to you right there and say, hey, man, this is this is a great opportunity to kind of jump right in and talk about that. Well, and, and just piggybacking off of we talked about the the two one buy down um, being an option uh, for buyers that ultimately want some some short term relief on their mortgage payment, and I, I just wanted to provide some context that there are additional options uh, in addition to the two one buy down. So essentially, uh, for those that maybe haven't been following along, uh, the way that the two one buy down works is if your interest rate is locked on a thirty year loan, uh, fixed rate at six and a half percent. Uh, in year one, that interest rate will be four and a half percent. Year two, five and a half percent, and then year three through thirty, your loan will be at six and a half percent. So it's a fixed rate loan. You just get the relief uh, in the the first two years, hence the name two mm-hmm. one buy down. Uh, but there are uh, a couple of other options as well. One of which is called a one zero buy down. And as you might expect, same scenario if you're locked in at a six and a half percent interest rate. Interest rates five and a half for year one, and then year two to thirty. Uh, you're you're fixed at the six and a half percent rate, uh, and then there's a three two one buy down, uh, and and ultimately, like you would guess, year one three and a half, year two four and a half, yeah. year three five and a half, and then year four through thirty six and a half. Uh, and I don't anticipate that we'll get a four three two one, but uh, <laughs> but we'll certainly stay tuned for that. Right. And uh, it's important, really, to to note the the reason for the different options. The the primary reason that we would point that out is that the cost of the 1-0 versus the 2-1 versus the 3-2-1, as you might expect, the cost, uh, the more rate relief you get, the higher the cost. Yeah. So, I think this is interesting. It's worth talking about for just a second there. Yeah, and and the way that these programs work is it's a it's a fixed-rate loan. The, the interest differential for the temporary periods is just subsidized at closing. And so in the case of just the one-year buy-down, that cost is generally less than 1% of the loan amount. Uh, the two one buy down, it's generally about two point three percent, and then the three two one is uh, generally close to about four and a half percent of the loan amount. And Daniel, who's paying for these costs? Well, the way that these programs work, it really only works if the seller or a builder, or a third party, is contributing mm-hmm. a majority of that cost. And uh, the reason being, let's take the case of the three two one buy down. Yeah. Um, you know, the cost of that being four and a half percent, it being that significant. I mean, you really have to have it's really more, I think, geared towards a builder type of a product. And exactly. you're really not, you wouldn't really necessarily expect to go into a negotiation with a seller and get a 4.5% credit uh, from the seller. And for our audience, let's back up here a little bit, just because I know sometimes you and I, we talk this lingo, we go back and forth. And for us, it's like just, you know, pow, 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 and here we go. We understand what we're saying. But I often get asked this 4.5%, like, what do you mean 4.5% of what? 
what does that really mean? So break that down just a little bit so everyone understands. Let's use a basic, just for simple math, four hundred thousand dollars. We're using four hundred thousand dollars, and let's just say that four and a half percent that you're talking about there, and that might not be simple math as we're looking at here, but y- you get the drift here. Four and a half percent. That's that's roughly eighteen thousand dollars. That's correct. In cost, that's eight. So that's four and a half percent of four hundred thousand dollars. That's eighteen hundred thousand dollars, assuming the loan amount's four hundred thousand, of course. That's four and a half percent of that loan amount. Someone has to pay that in that three, two, one buy down case. So that's eighteen thousand dollars. Which, to your point, which is why you typically see that more attractive in the builder's market than a traditional resale market, because a traditional seller isn't looking to give up eighteen thousand dollars right away. Correct. And and in order to structure that as a cost um, to the buyer, you know, in many cases they can't pay points um, in an amount great enough. Uh, to stay within federal regulations. So as a buyer, think about it. I can't pay the cost of the buy-down because it, at that point, uh, the lender would have to cost pass that cost to me in the form of discount points. Right. And I can't actually pay that cost in staying with QM loan guidelines. We're so a compliance guideline. Exactly correct. So that's why we say this is a program that's geared towards a third party contributing a majority of that cost because in in some cases, uh, without that contribution from a third party, there would be no way for a lender to offer that product. Right. And there's a trick to this. You could have buyer contribute and seller contribute to kind of split that cost to meet the compliance. So if you are doing with a resale and you are interested in this product, there's a way to make it work, but it's going to have to be split cost. Correct. Okay. Correct. So of these three options, <clears throat> you know, you're you're out there, you see this all the time. Which one of these is the most popular and why? I think the two one buy down is the most well known because it was the first one that kind of came back to market. Mm-hmm. So the two one buy down led the market by probably at least a couple of months before the the one zero and then the three two ones. They, they've kind of come come out in waves as far as how they've been reintroduced back into the market. So I think that most people are most familiar with the two one buy down. But in terms of which one really has the most staying power, the one zero buy down, in my opinion, probably has the most staying power. Uh, when you're talking about a resale market, because the cost is more reasonable, it, and you know, three quarters of a percent, right. of one percent of the loan amount, very affordable, is a lot more easy uh, to negotiate. Or if a lender wanted to provide that as a true lender paid um, incentive, that's much more attainable than um, trying to build a much larger percentage into the pricing, essentially. So there's a, besides the obvious relief, there's a hidden gem in this product. And I, and I really want our listeners to kind of tap into this one because this goes way overlooked. And uh, and I would say that when it first came out, everyone was just so, you know, thrilled with the rate relief. They forgot about this. The money that's prepaid, because essentially you are prepaying that differential of interest between your, let's assume, one and two, and in some cases, three, that money is sitting in an escrow account, essentially. So, Daniel, what happens if I'm a buyer and I buy on your 2-1 program and then all of a sudden rates drop in the next six months or a year and I want to refinance, but the seller prepaid that interest differential on that 2-1 buy-down? What can I do with that money? Yeah, any any of that interest, uh, if, if the loan is paid off via you know, refinance mm-hmm. or sale before uh, that that period is over. It's you know essentially applied as a principal reduction. Okay, so, so it reduces my principal balance. Exactly correct. So if you're in the camp of, well, interest rates could go down and I could refinance this loan, then this is a product that still has an appeal for you because that's not money lost by any means, as opposed to if you chose to take that money and allocate it towards discount points, well, that money would be lost. Generally speaking, you, you wouldn't have held the loan long enough to recoup the cost associated with that upfront investment. So 
the two one or the you know, the buy downs in general, they have that added feature of if you were to refinance the loan, when rates go down, you don't lose any of that money. It's simply applied to your loan. Uh, whatever the remaining differential is applied to your loan as principal reduction. Yeah, I love that that feature. And could it be that some lenders market this as you can use that towards your refinance because you are essentially reducing your cost? It, you're going to see some lenders maybe advertise that as you can use that money towards the refinance cost of your loan or towards the cost of a new loan. Yeah, and, and I think that it's really just good marketing, realistically, okay. um, in my opinion. So, so yeah, that's something that you may certainly see lenders advertise that. Yeah. So that is, that is something that is, as a consumer, as a buyer, I'm going to think about like, wow, I could take advantage of this, someone else pay it. And now I can reuse that money towards my benefit. If the rates come back down, what a wonderful product. It's great to uh, see those kind of make their way to the market in multiple facets. So FHA released some news. Now, the reason this is interesting, I'll let you talk about it is the flood insurance is now they're going to allow private flood insurance on the market for FHA loans and kind of talk to them about why that's a big deal and how we got to that level. So historically, up until very recently, flood insurance was only available through the National Flood Insurance Program, um, so FEMA policies, essentially. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the premium was set based on whatever rates they had come up with. And private flood insurance entered the market um, fairly recently on the, the conventional loan side. And essentially, as you might, um, as you might guess, there are companies, private companies outside of the NFIP that are issuing flood insurance policies. NFIP is National Flood Insurance. Correct, Policy. National Flood Insurance Program. Um, and generally speaking, well, it kind of depends, but generally speaking, those policies could be cheaper than FEMA policies. Mm -hmm. um, so conventional financing allowed for more flexibility there if you have a situation where customer is not comfortable with the cost of flood insurance. Now they've got another option to go look at private flood insurance policies as well. Uh, FHA, while they did allow for companies, uh, third-party companies, to write policies through FEMA, they didn't allow private flood insurance. But now they've recently said, as of effective of December tw or December twenty-first of of this year, so just a few weeks from now, essentially they will allow for private flood insurance. So FHA buyers have options there to help make those payments a lot more affordable if they purchase a property. Uh, that is determined to be in a, a flood zone that would require flood insurance. So this is a big deal because if you're on a coastal state or if you're in a state that has a lot of floods, or maybe you're not in a state that has a lot of floods, but you're maybe in a hundred-year flood zone, trust me, we've seen it happen. It gets it, Floods do happen. But it also affects and impacts the debt-to-income ratio and the borrowing ability of the borrower, and the list of things go on and on and on. And to have an ability to have a secondary outlet to choose from is a big deal because sometimes those NFIP policies you refer to, they just get lumped in, and then you know everyone gets the same cost, and you're kind of paying for certain areas versus the ones the private are saying, I'm going to take a little more risk on this and not charge you as much because I don't feel like it's a, as risky of an environment as maybe you know someone that lives right on the ocean or lives right on the intercoastal. So there's some wins with that that uh, are nice to see come to the FHA market. I think it's a huge win from an affordability standpoint. Obviously, anytime you can give additional options uh, and not be captive to having to use one particular insurance yep. option, that's generally a good thing for the market. So it's it really is a big win here, and, and I think that um, – a lot of buyers using FHA financing will benefit from this. So I feel like this is a lending update full of wins because here comes another one right at you here. Uh, we have the conforming loan limits that the Federal Housing Finance Agency has rolled out. Now, <clears throat> keep in mind, Daniel, when you started, I believe conforming limits were like 417. When when I was doing loans, I, they were 282, 500. 
we're about to talk about a 726,200 new conforming limit. That that means you could put 5% down in some cases, three. You could put five if you did qualify for that. But I mean, 5% down for 726,000, that is just mind baffling. And that is all based on an appreciation schedule that comes out each month from the Federal Housing Finance Agency, where they do a look back from the previous uh, two months, and they continue to show the appreciation rate over each month, and they develop a composite. And the differential between this year's composite and last year's composite reflects a difference of $79,000 in the new conforming loan limit. And this is spread out around all those different appreciation schedules of the United States, $726,200. Like, what's going through your head when you hear that? Well, I think first and foremost, it's even higher than maybe what we anticipated, or at least myself speaking, what, what I would have anticipated. And, and I was kind of curious to see because a lot of lenders uh, this year jumped the gun on um, basically allowing for conventional loans. Yeah, we talked about that two two months ago. Above the 647-200 number. And they capped it at 715. And then uh, a couple of readings came out with showing appreciation slowing and they rolled that back a little bit, and some some investors rolled it back to seven hundred thousand. So, I was I was curious to see kind of how that would where we would land. So to, to land at seven twenty six two hundred was a little bit of a surprise in a good way, based on what I was expecting. And you know, I, I just did a quick look back yesterday when this was, well, it was announced a couple of days ago. But I just did a look back, and uh, from two thousand six to two thousand sixteen, the conforming loan limit was at four hundred seventeen thousand. <laughs> For 10 years, it remained the same. And since that time, now we've got a 74% increase in a six-year span. So it's, it was just was super interesting and eye-opening to see that kind of a differential. So I just want to take that for a second. So for six years, 74% increase. What's interesting to me about what you just said there is that is that is a number that is pulled. The increase there is pulled based on monthly appreciation. So what I'm hearing is that real estate has increased 74% around the country since 2016 till now. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a, a conclusion you could certainly arrive at. So if you can invest in something over six years and garner 74% return, that doesn't sound like a bad deal to me. I think you probably have a pretty easy time raising capital for yeah, that. that's a pretty good portfolio <laughs> right there. Yo, thank you so much for choosing us today. We're definitely not done with our podcast, but we are going to take a really short sponsor break and then we'll get right back to the show. I've been in the lending business for 20 years. I've seen many different lenders. During those 20 years, I recognized there's a difference between being an originator and an advisor. And the team at Bank of England is full of advisors. They take their time to understand your needs. They take the time to structure a mortgage for you and your family. And I cannot recommend them enough. If you're in the market to purchase a home, maybe it's a second home, maybe it's an investment property, or you're looking to refinance your current property that you live in, take a minute to work with the advisors at Bank of England Mortgage. They're a nationwide lender, and you can find your local branch at boemortgage.com, www.boemortgage.com, because it's more than loans, it's people. Thanks so much for letting us give a shout out to our sponsor. All right, now back to the podcast. So not only in the uh, the conventional world, we also had news in the FHA world. You want to update us on that? Now, yeah. this is different per county, of course, but... Yeah, before we get to that, I also want to point out that VA loans follow conforming loans. Ah, good point. So now you've got a 726200 loan uh, on the VA side as well, which the way that that really translates to the market is if a, uh, a VA buyer has an existing VA loan right now, there's a remaining entitlement calculation that determines how much they can purchase uh, with 100% financing. Mm-hmm. So once you've used up that entitlement, 
at that point, a down payment is required. So for people that want uh, a situation where maybe you've already got a VA loan and you're purchasing another one, you're able to purchase uh, and get a much larger loan on another property when these loan limits increase. I think that's really the impact for a, a VA buyer. Yeah, no, that's great. I think it's awesome. And then, you know, going to the VA, excuse me, the FHA side of things. Now, remember, this is per county. That's the weird thing about FHA. Everything's county basis or MSA basis. So in this particular section, you're probably going to talk a little bit about the MSA of Jacksonville, but we can also kind of break down a little bit of the, you know, sometimes there's this there's this baseline FHA loan limit uh, around the country. I believe it's like 426 or, or, or something of that nature. But it's higher per county in other areas that have higher um, higher affordability issues. So I'll let you kind of take it from there. Yeah, and I only pulled the numbers here for for our market as it pertains to these loan limits. But essentially, we went from four thirty two four hundred to five twenty six seven hundred. Yeah. So you know what is that? Almost that's almost a hundred thousand dollar increase, a ninety five thousand dollar increase there, and uh, that is for the Jacksonville metro. So that's. Duval, Clay, St. John's, yeah. Nassau, and Baker counties. And if you're looking for your metro in our show notes, just click on the bottom there. We're going to have the HUD <coughs> link you just put in your state, and you can go examine the counties to see exactly what your your new loan limit is. But I can guarantee you it's higher than what it was prior to. And and it's you know, once again, it's interesting to think that we're almost at what the conforming loan limit was <laughs> when you started just a couple of years ago. And the conforming loan limit was five forty eight two fifty very recently, and now the FHA loan limit a couple of years later is pushing that number. And last thing I'll say on on that is keep in mind for conforming loans, FHA loans, and VA loans, these loan limits increase if you're talking about a two, three, or four unit property. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So you've got on the FHA side, in our market, you can now purchase a four unit property and get a um, a loan in excess of a million dollars, <sighs> which is a pretty eye opening thought. And you know, on the conforming side, it's it's almost one point four million of a loan you can get on a four unit and still be considered a conventional loan. So yeah. pretty eye popping numbers when you take a look at them. Yeah, no, it's I mean, it's it is definitely a, a lot to take in. But the opportunities are endless when you take a look at that, whether you're an investor, whether you're a, a primary residence purchasing, um, you know, a, tri, a, a quadplex or however you choose to scope that there's endless opportunities there that we didn't have even two years ago. Without a doubt. So pretty cool to see. So here's the question we get asked every single day. We've been talking about it over and over again, in our podcast, what's the latest on mortgage rates? And just to kind of bring our listeners up to speed. If you haven't heard one of our podcasts yet, we are proponents of we've believed since the rates peaked at seven and a half that they would continue to make their way down for multiple reasons. Um, check out episode nine, check out episode 10. We continue to go into deep detail with a guest on the show as well, Dan Habib, who's also an economist who goes into why uh, he shares the same beliefs we do on this. But in today's portion, we won't dive into that again and rehear, you know, regurgitate what we've already talked about, but rates are kind of starting to slide back a little bit. And I'm not here to say that I told you so yet. We've been called crazy. We've been called a lot of things by a lot of people saying, there's no way we're going to be back in the fives. And here we are today, six and a quarter. We're hovering that area. And very cheaply, could you get to 5875? And it's not going to take much to push it back over the edge. So talk to us briefly about where we stand on the mortgage rates. I feel like every time I'm on here, we talk about rates. But <laughs> it's the hot topic of conversation uh, and not just real estate. I mean, the economy in general is, is heavily impacted by what's going on with interest rates right now. But, but obviously in our world, you know, mortgage rates have been uh, all, all of the buzz and, and kind of have a lot of people in wait and see mode. But the big thing that we've talked about is with respect to the inflation readings, you've got from October of 21 to through June of 22, you've got really elevated inflation readings. So mm -hmm. inflation was really hot during that time. And what we're seeing over the past two months here 
is moderate inflation. So the readings are still positive. In, in, in the, the October CPI reading basically came in uh, at 0.4%. So it's still a positive number. But because the number that is being replaced was so much higher, moderate inflation is causing inflation to go down. So we went from 8.2% to 7.7% on inflation. If you look at core inflation, which basically strips out food and energy costs, once again, we went up by 0.3%. So we had inflation, but because we were replacing a higher reading, inflation went from 66 to 6.3%. Um, sorry, that was October. And, and basically that what happened in October is um, at, when that information came out, November 10th sparked the biggest rally in mortgage-backed securities uh, in, since they've recorded that information. So, that so was, CPI goes down, biggest rally in the mortgage market we've seen since they started recording that data. That is correct. <clears throat> so that is, that is the October inflation data, just, just for, for uh, set the record there. Uh, but I think it's important context because we talked about this, in, uh, we've talked about this a good bit, that moderate inflation will bring the inflation readings down. Absolutely. And when the inflation readings come down, that's a good thing for mortgage bonds. And, and maybe we just back up for just a second before we go any further. Just for our listeners, very quickly, there's three forms of inflation. There's CPI, which is the consumer price index, right? Then there's PCE, which is what the Federal Reserve uses to measure inflation. That's their favorite form of, of uh, inflationary measurement, which is personal consumption expenditures. And then you have the PPI, which is the uh, the price production, excuse me, producer, producer price, price yep. index. Thank you. Yep. And that's the, uh, the that, that's the one that says, hey, listen, if I'm making this cup that I'm drinking water out of and it costs more money for me to make this cup, how much do I take on before I pass it down to the consumer? All three of these are above where they normally are. All three of these are very elevated right now. Each one of them gets a new reading each month for the previous month. So whatever comes in in November is representing October's and so forth and so on. And each one of them come in at a different time. They don't all hit at the same time. So we've got three levels of inflation that hit each month. And the one the Federal Reserve pays the most attention to is the PCE, which just came out yesterday. And we're going to talk about that briefly. But the CPI is real close right now. The CPI is a real close level they're looking at. And the CPI is also what I-bonds are measured off of. And then the PPI really just doesn't get as much respect, but it's getting a lot of attention right now. Because if prices continue to go up on the production side, that's eventually going to make its way to the consumer side. So I just want to set the stage for that as you're talking about this CPI right now and what's to come. Absolutely. And, and I think that <clears throat> while we do believe interest rates will come down, uh, we're, we're in the camp of people that believe that we will see interest rates come down. We don't know timing-wise. Nobody obviously knows. But we don't know timing-wise exactly when that's going to happen. Right. We don't know if we may experience some some highs and lows with inflation so, or, or with, with rates. So that's not to say that rates will stay low f over the course of a long period of time, but we do believe that we will see interest rates come down fairly considerably. I will say that there will be some volatility. There will be, will be some bumps in the road. I don't think we're headed for a straight downward line to lower mortgage right. rates by you know February, March, April of next year. But I do think that you're starting to see the signs of the things that we've talked about, uh, and you're starting to, to, to find... Uh, further reason to believe that um, we're going to see some more moderate infra inflation readings replacing elevated readings, and that's really where we're getting this thought process from. That because you're, you're replacing the reading from the last year with this congruent month. So the one that just came out that shows for October, we're replacing October of last year. So we kind of have this future of what we're looking at by looking into the past. We know if we replace a higher reading with this moderate reading, that the average is going to come down. Correct. And, so they, and therefore they, leading us to believe that the index comes down 
which rates will come down. That's where we're going with our with our forecast. And the inflation readings were so elevated for those readings that I just mentioned that even if there's still inflation, but it's just not as much inflation, the readings will come down. So we're, right. we're saying we could still have inflation and the readings could come down. Right. And yeah. that's the big takeaway of why we feel the way that we feel. Yeah. Great point. And on, you know, yesterday, as we record this on Friday the 2nd, on December 1st, the PCE reading came out. And it came in slightly below expectation, right? Which is good. Anything below expectation is good. But it replaced a previous reading, to your point, that was higher. So it was moderate inflation that replaced a, a, a higher elevated inflation. So we see some wins in that on the, um, on the rate side. And we're seeing the treasury make its way back down. You know, the last time we were talking, the 10-year treasury was 3839. It's 357, 358 right now. For our audience, as that comes down, rates come down with it as well. So everything that we've been forecasting thus far has happened slowly. It's gradually getting there. And if you recall, we went back and said, first quarter, we think we're going to be in the fives. We're wrapping up to end of the year here. We could see it even happen at the end of the year. I doubt it, but we could. On the 14th, we get the CPI index, and that'll also be another uh, windfall of hopeful success or, you know, we hit the pause button. Yeah, and the the PCE reading that we just got would would – Normally, be nothing to be excited about yeah. from an from you an economic be standpoint. This wrong. <laughs> but because the readings were so much higher, we're, you know that that was a win. Yep. But I also think it's important to just make note briefly that you know, the owner's equivalent rent portion of inflation readings um, that data lags pretty pretty significantly, and um, at, over the next few months, the that portion of inflation is going to be considerably lower. Mm-hmm which is also going to drive inflation down, we think it could be a significant change there. So the owner's equivalent rent, uh, which we could certainly get you know, more into at a later time as far as a deeper dive, but there's reason to believe that that owner's equivalent rent number, which that, that data lags pretty significantly, will start to come down. And, and I forget which index it is, but it represents, I think, 39% of the oh, inflation it's the reading. largest reading of inflation. So if, if that number starts to come down now... 39% of what is tracked in these inflation reports that come, come down is going to be coming down considerably. Mm-hmm. So it's just something, something to keep an eye on and something that it further illustrates the point that we've been trying to make. Yeah, and just real quickly, I mean, we don't have to get into it, but I think it's hilarious. Owner's equivalent rent. <laughs> it goes a little something like this. I'm going to call you Daniel. Hey, Daniel, and you're going to pick up your money. Hey, hey, this is such and such. I'm conducting this survey. Um, I know you own your home, but if you were going to rent your home, what would you rent it for? And you're going to say a number. And I'm going to go, thank you. <laughs> and that's how that's accounted for. That is not, I mean, it's many people will argue that is an outdated way of uh, conducting that information, but it's what we have to work with. And it's consistently bad, but it's what we have to work with. I think you could probably point to a number of flaws in a lot of the data that we sure. receive, but we, we take the data that we have and we try to interpret it and, and forecast based on the best information that we have. Yeah, some might say a lot of the uh, governmental measurements that we get right now uh, favor whoever's in office, right? A lot of people say that there is a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uh, fallacies in the indexes we're getting 
uh, now and have gotten in the past too. So, uh, you know, it's, it's whatever, uh, whatever boost and benefits who's in office is the information and how it's measured right now. And so sometimes as we look at this, we often question the, the legitimacy of what we're getting here, but it's the tools we have to work with nonetheless. That's, that is absolutely the case. So, uh, well, that's all we got for our lending update here. And Daniel, always glad having you on the show here, man. Appreciate your insight and you know, your ground level expertise that you bring to the show. Very much appreciated. Um, again, for those of you who want to hear more about this, check us out on our YouTube channel at What's Your One More. Check us out at Apple uh, and Spotify podcast at What's Your One More. And then also check us out on our social medias at What's Your One More. Uh, we'd love to hear from you and hear your feedback as well. Thanks again. I got one more shot, I'm going to make it. One more chance, I'm going to take it. I meant it when I said it, now it's time for me to do it. I got one life to live, so I put all into it, yeah.